For the past several weeks on Sunday evening, with the exception of the tabs evening, we have been discussing some problems that occur in our local area. We are going to address tonight one that is certainly uh, not something pleasant to discuss. But you know, if I do what I am supposed to do and please God, I cannot ignore something that needs to be discussed and needs to be taught in our community. When Jude wrote his general letter in the book of Jude, he said he wanted to write concerning the common salvation, Jude, verse 3. But he says, I was constrained to write unto you to earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Then in verse 4 he says, For certain men have crept in unawares. You know that when you read passages like that, you realize that we are facing a real challenge of people who are bringing in teachings which are not correct. And so tonight we're going to talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, particularly as relates to errors that are being taught and or practiced in our area. Let me begin with some very sobering thoughts. Divorce is a sad reality of our modern world. I would like for each of you to think, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise your hand, but I'd like for you to think how many of you have, not just one, but several people who are divorced in your own family. And I want you to think about the generation that has changed even since I have been alive. I remember as a small child how it was just very, very rare to meet someone who had been divorced. Today, you can even look in good, sound, wholesome congregations and you can see how divorce has ravaged those congregations. Prevention is the key to alleviate heartache. Anytime you can prevent a problem rather than deal with it afterwards, you are much better off. With that in mind, I want to encourage those of you who are dating, those of you who are contemplating marriage, make sure that you choose the right spouse. Make sure that that young man or that young woman that you are looking at is someone that not only do you love now, but you're willing to live with for the rest of your natural life. Brother Ken read just a few moments ago where Jesus said that for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 6. Jesus taught that God's plan was one man, one woman for life. And if you're not ready to make a commitment that says, I'm going to do this for life, don't do it. But for those of us who are married, we need to be nurturing our marriages. We need to be trying to do things that make them stronger. We ought to make sure that we pay attention to the needs of our husbands and our wives. We need to make sure that we're doing things that will prevent divorce from happening, to try to prevent difficulties from arising. You know, if people just did a little bit extra all along, their marriages not only would be surviving, but they would be happy. And so we ought to be nurturing the marriages we have. 
And again, I remind you that the Bible teaches us to think carefully about the promises, the vows that we make. In Ecclesiastes 5, 4 and 5, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And so when you stand and you promise before God and before witnesses, I will love this person till death parts us, mean it and live it. As by way of introduction, I also need to point out to you that truth is absolute. I can remember about, I guess now it's getting close to 40 years ago, when Brother Thomas Warren, I was sitting in his class, and he kept saying, young men, be sure that you always teach truth is absolute. That means it is true regardless of how I feel about it or how anyone else feels about it. Just because I may not feel good about some teaching of God's Word doesn't change what it says. Jesus put it simply in John 8 and verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Here's the problem, though. Where some of us let doctrine determine our practice. In other words, when we pick up that Bible, that Bible will tell us what we're going to do. Others will let their practice determine their doctrine. They'll take what they want to do, and then they'll try to teach that. In our area, we have congregations that have embraced, we will accept anyone in their marriage policy. And I put that in quotations because I'm going to make reference to that in just a few moments. How do churches justify this? Well, I'd suggest to you this evening, I'm going to look at five errors that are being taught these are in some places in print. If they're not in print, they're in practice or actually maybe on a lesson that has been delivered. They are. You can get divorced and remarried for just any cause. The second is to say that those who are not Christians are not under the covenant of God. You remember two weeks ago tonight I dealt with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how some say that's Old Testament so that you're not under the teaching of Matthew 19. Some believe that Paul gave another reason. They call it the Pauline privilege from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The view that one cannot live in adultery. And then finally that the guilty party can remarry just as well as the innocent party. Let's begin looking at these. The first one I want to address is really the beginning of the text that Brother Ken read just a few moments ago. In Matthew 19 and verse 3, the Pharisees also came to him testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And you see, the truth is, the courts today allow no-fault divorces. No fault. They're saying that the husband didn't make a mistake, that the wife didn't make a mistake, that really all there is are just irreconcilable differences and that no one bears any responsibility whatsoever. That is exactly the question that the Pharisees were asking of Jesus because divorce was very prevalent in Jesus' day. Now, I've had people say, well, we don't really believe that. 
We don't really accept that, but in reality, they practice it. I want to point out to you, and I, I hate having to be specific, but sometimes people say, I don't know what you're talking about, so I'm going to be a little more specific. On August the 16th, 1998, at 9 minutes and 27 seconds, on a sermon titled, God Hates Divorce, Harold Jones preached a lesson at Westwood. And his statement was in that, we have heard it said by churches all around Warren County that we'll take anyone in any marriage. And he said, that's right. In fact, to make it emphasis, he said, that's right twice. Any person in any marriage. That's pretty specific. And then he goes on to say that the reason why is because of God's grace that God will just allow this to take place. Some people believe that it doesn't matter what reason you get a divorce, that God will accept it. Now, part of their justification is the second one. And this began in the 1950s with a preacher by the name of E.C. Fuquay. He and Brother Thomas Warren debated on that subject in the 1950s. It's called the Warren-Fuqua debate. I've got it in print. You can read it if you want to. Shortly thereafter, Brother James Bales, in 1961, spoke on the subject. I actually have a copy of that lesson as well, in which he emphasized that a person is not under the new covenant. Here's what he said, that only the Christians are under the new covenant, and those who are not Christians are not under the new covenant. That is, it's not binding on non-Christians. So that if you're out here and you're in the world and you marry and you divorce and you marry and you divorce, say five times. And then you become a Christian. It's only when you become a Christian that you are now under the covenant. And so thus, Matthew 19 and verse 9 does not apply. Now, unless you think that I'm misrepresenting it, I want to give a quote by Brother Bales in his book, Not Under Bondage, from page 10. He says, once they obey the gospel, they come under Christ's law in this matter, and they are not to divorce and remarry except for fornication. However, the law of Christ is not retroactive, and they do not have to break up their second marriage when they come into Christ, even though they have been divorced for some other reason than fornication. We have people here who believe that who believe that the law of Christ does not apply to a non-Christian. Now, for them, and Brother Bales would say, this solves our difficulty with evangelistic works. For instance, you go and you knock on the door, for instance, of someone, and you say, let me teach you the gospel of Christ. And a person believes what you teach about the gospel. And they say, okay, I'm ready now to be baptized But I want you to understand this is my third wife. This is my fourth wife. Well, for those who believe in this view, then you don't have to worry. You can just take that person and baptize them and never even ask the questions about their marriages or anything such as that. And there are two passages they frequently use. The first one is found in Acts 22, verse 16. You're very familiar with it. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. They ask the question, how many of one's sins are forgiven when a person is baptized? 
And the answer is all of their past sins. And so they would say, so don't worry about all those past sins. They are now forgiven. The second passage they would use is 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 20 where Paul says, Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. So they would suggest that here, for instance, you may be in your third marriage, your fourth marriage, and you just stay in the one that you were called in. Because after all, that's what he's saying. You become a Christian, and then you just stay where you're at. Very briefly, I'd like to critique this and see if this is what the Scriptures teach. How do non-Christians become sinners? That's a very important question. A man out here in the world who is needing the gospel of Jesus Christ, how does he become a sinner? What law does he violate? Listen to Romans 4 verse 15. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there's no transgression. Put that in your mind. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. If there are no speed limit laws with regards to the speed on an interstate, just like there is the uh, road over in Germany, the Audubon, you can drive as fast as you want to. The police can't stop you and say, you're speeding. If there's no law, there's no transgression. If men today are not under the law of Christ, what law do they violate? If you go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, in the original King James, what whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. How can a person become a sinner if there's no law to which they are obligated to? Let's don't just stop there. Let's go to a specific passage of Scripture. When Paul wrote the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were uh, Well, how did they get to be adulterers? How did they get to be fornicators? What law did they violate? I know this is before they were baptized because you were washed, you were sanctified. You see, the truth is, is that all men are amenable to or accountable to the law of Christ. How else could Jesus claim all authority? Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Not some of it, all of it. John 17, and verse 2, As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. You see, Jesus has authority over all flesh. But what about repentance? You know, here I am. I want to become a Christian. What am I going to repent of? Well, obviously my past sins. 
for me to repent of past sins. I've got to have violated some law. It is the law of Christ. Well, what if it's, for instance, I'm a thief? Can I continue to steal? Can I continue to keep what I've stolen? What if I'm a polygamist? I've been married five times, not five successive times, but to five women. Can I keep all five wives? Listen to what Ezekiel and Proverbs say. Proverbs 6 and verse 30 and 31. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give all the substance of his house. If you are found guilty of stealing, you've got to pay it back. Even if it takes everything you've got. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. And when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. If he turns from his sins, does what is lawful and right. If he, the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen. Do you hear that? Gives back what he has stolen. So that means if I repent of my sins and I am doing something wrong, I have got to get out of it. So if I am in an unscriptural marriage as according to the teaching of Jesus, then I've got to get out of it if I'm going to repent. Number three is what is often referred to as the Pauline privilege. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15 we read, But if an unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, what they suggest is, is that here's a person who has a husband or a wife who deserts them. They just leave them. They're no longer in their lives. They just, they've gone off with somebody else. And then you say, okay, well, Paul says you don't have to worry. You're not under bondage. You can get out of that. Well, obviously he doesn't say anything about remarriage. But let me put it in its proper context for just a few moments. 1 Corinthians 7 exists because the brethren at Corinth wrote Paul a question. Not just here, but other places as well. And they wanted to know specifically about a situation where a Christian was married to a non-Christian. How should they as Christians react to that? Look with me at verse 1 and verse 26. Now concerning the things of which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He goes on in verse 2, Nevertheless, because of fornications, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. You see, God had a plan. However, Paul was recommending at this time, from verse 20 we read earlier, you remember he says, Let each man abide in the calling in which he was called. He was saying... If you're not married, it'd be better not to marry. If you are married, don't get out of that. Don't change your status. Don't change your situation. And the reason why is because there was a present distress upon them. In verse 26, I suppose, therefore, this is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And particularly, he's thinking here, is not being married. But under no circumstances... And I repeat, under no circumstances was a believer to divorce their spouse in 1 Corinthians 7. Look and see what he says in verses 10 through 13. 
Now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried, or else let her be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if a brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if she, he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. In both situations where you have a Christian married to a Christian, you don't divorce. If you are a Christian married to a non-Christian, either way, don't divorce them if they're willing to live with you. I don't see how anyone can try to insert here that desertion somehow becomes another privilege for a person to go with. But I will make one point, and I know this is a point of grammar. It may or may not be evident to you. But the phrase, not under bondage, is in the perfect tense. In the perfect tense in the original language means it is not now nor has it ever been. In other words, it talks about past and present and even to some extent future. That's the reason why it's called the perfect tense. And when he says you're not under bondage in such cases, it could not refer to the marriage bond because that would refer to their being bound together. What he is essentially saying is you are not now nor have you ever been bound to give up the Lord for anyone or anything. And you've never been in that kind of bondage. It doesn't matter where it's a business. It doesn't matter where it's a marriage. You are to remain loyal and true to God. Number four is the error that says that one cannot live in adultery. I've actually had the conversation with some people in our area on this. What they would do is point to John chapter 8 and verse 4 when it's talking about the woman who was caught in adultery. It says, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was called an adultery in the very act. And they would say, See, Scripture says adultery is an act. It's not something you can live in. You go out and you commit adultery, you get forgiven of it, but it's not something that you live in. It's not an ongoing state in which a person would live. And yet, what if I keep on doing something? What if I keep on getting drunk? You know what you call me? A drunkard. What do you call a person who is an adulterer and they keep on committing the act? Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Therefore put to death your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. You see, if a person is continually covetous, he's living in covetousness. If a young man and young woman are living together and they're not married and they're committing fornication, they're living in fornication. And if a man is married to a woman to whom he has no right to be married, He's living in adultery. They want to suggest that I can commit a sin, get forgiveness, and then continue to commit it. Why is it that it is only marriage that they believe this? If someone comes out and they steal your 
car and they come forward and they say, I want to be baptized. I want to be forgiven of my sin. You say, okay, that's great. After service, you say, where's my car? You can live in it as long as you persist in it. Number five is that the guilty party may remarry. This view is also attributed to Brother James Bales. Um, and sad to say, Brother Gus Nichols also held this view right at the end of his life. And it's, they use an illustration to make this point. And that is they would say that if you have a man and a woman who are married, they are handcuffed together, joined together. And what they would say, if the two are handcuffed together and you release the innocent party, the one who didn't do anything wrong, then you also release the other person as well. So if you break the handcuff to the innocent party, they would say that that means the guilty party now is free to remarry as well. But the truth is we're all handcuffed to God and to his law. That's not a, a handcuff we can break. And we're all still responsible. But even in light of all that, it directly contradicts what Jesus said. I want to go back and read Matthew 19 and verse 9 to you. And I don't think that you can twist this passage to say it's okay. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. You see, in what Jesus is saying is if I divorce someone and it's not for fornication, and I marry somebody else, I'm committing adultery. If someone else is divorced and it wasn't for fornication, they weren't the innocent party, and they marry someone else, that person that marries them is committing adultery. That means this is real serious. This is real serious. Paul said there would be people who would want to find teachers who would say what they wanted to hear. You know, here's the truth, folks. There's always people who are going to be looking for you to tell them that anything that you want to do is okay. I noticed in the paper a woman pointed out that there's a religious body meeting downtown that they said, oh, we accept homosexuals, we accept drunkards. There's always going to be somebody who will say, it's okay, it's okay. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul told Timothy the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. They'll find somebody who will teach it the way they want it taught. And they're going to do that here as well. But let me point out to you, I may have offended some of you. I hope I didn't offend you by the way I presented it. But if the truth hurts, here's what the Scripture says, because I want you to know who your real friend is. Proverbs 27, verse 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You want a friend who 
when you stand before God on the day of judgment, who is going to tell you the truth. This is the way it really is. It may hurt now, but in reality, you'll appreciate that person much more on the day of judgment. Psalm 141, verse 5, Let the righteous strike me. It shall be kindness. And let him rebuke me. It shall be excellent oil. Let not my head refuse it. For still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. Folks, you want somebody who will tell you the truth. And it's always important to test the teachers. doesn't matter whether it's me or anyone else. You always take your Bible out and you make sure that what they are telling you is exactly what the Scriptures said. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. We need to be the kind of people when someone tells us something, we say, okay, I've got to check that out before I'm going to accept that. And make sure we open our Bibles, we open our minds, and we learn and accept the truth. I realize this has not been an evangelistic type lesson it's one that was necessary. But it may be that during this day, sometime maybe in Bible class, maybe in the lesson this morning, you've been thinking about, I need to be a New Testament Christian. It's important that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but it's also important that you repent of your sins. Acts 2, verse 38, Peter said, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So you believe, you repent, you confess his sweet name and you're baptized. And then if you are repentant, all your sins are forgiven. From that point forward, you determine whatever has been wrong in my life, I am going to make sure I now walk with our Savior. We many times fail the Lord. And if that's been your life and you've not been forgiven and you want to make it right tonight, we'll pray with you. Would you come while we stand inside?